let me show you a list of names. This is not working. Do I need the other thing or this still works? I'll use that one. Okay. All right. Shamua, Shafat, Igal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Setur, Nabi, and Guel. How many of you recognize these 10 names from the Bible? All right. How about... How about these two names? Yeah. I mean, how many people you know name their kids after any of those 10 names? How many people you know name their kids after the other two, Joshua and Caleb? Can anyone guess who the 10 people were? Now that it's put in context with Joshua and Caleb. Have a guess? Yeah? They are the 10 spies who along with Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 13 and 14, they went into the promised land to do reconnaissance, but they were the 10 because of their fear convinced the rest of the Israelites not to trust in God and not to go into the, to, to take the land. And so no one remembers them, do they? No one remembers the names of the 10 spies who piked out. We only remember the names of the two, Joshua and Caleb who boldly trusted in God when everyone else didn't. Today, we are looking at a prayer for boldness. And this prayer, as we just read earlier, is a prayer that you'll notice gets answered immediately. There's almost no prayer in the Bible quite like it. It was answered almost immediately, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this prayer literally changed the world. Imagine what God could do in our time to our world if we prayed like that and if it was answered in the way that it was then. Because isn't our world more hostile to Jesus and secular than perhaps it's been for at least in living memory, perhaps even for thousands of years? And isn't our world even more needy as you look around the world, 2020 especially, needy for real hope? Real love and real meaning and real forgiveness. Isn't this our world more than ever in need of that? Imagine what could happen if we really prayed a prayer for boldness and God answered it today like he did in Acts chapter 4. And by the way, it's not just our world, isn't it? I'm so glad that Ness prayed this. It's our parents who don't know Jesus. It's your relatives who don't know Jesus. It's your neighbors. It's your classmates. It's your friends. People need Jesus, don't they? People are facing an eternity without Jesus. People are living without true hope and true joy, without Jesus. Imagine what could happen if today we really began praying for boldness like this and if it was answered today like it was for them. You see how important this prayer is? Why don't we ask God to help us as we open this <clears throat> bit of the Bible. Father, I pray that out of today would be not just an understanding of your word, but a commitment, a desperation, a boldness to pray boldly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Stories so far, just to give you a bit of context, the book of Acts, if you've never read it, it is great reading. All right. Read it. It is the exciting and epic growth of the early church from a small group of frightened former disciples of Jesus who then, by the end of Acts, within a span of about 30 years, end up reaching the center of the Roman Empire in the space of 30 years. This is an amazing history 
of the Christian movement. So in Acts chapter 2, a couple of chapters back, God pours out His Holy Spirit on the disciples gathered in Jerusalem. That's what made them turn from being timid, scared disciples to being bold preachers of the gospel. As a Peter, the chief disciple, preaches his first sermon, 3,000 are converted. It's called revival. And it's still in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, another disciple, well, they come across a beggar who's paralyzed from birth. They heal him instantly in the name of Jesus, and everyone sees this, and they're amazed. And so you see, far from being a forgotten, crucified Messiah, it's evident that the name of Jesus shows that he was healed in the name of Jesus, shows that Jesus is still very much alive and still very much at work through his people. Now, all of this brings the Jewish authorities against them. Peter and John are arrested, and they are thrown in jail overnight without charge. No legal processes, no proper, you know, stuff. They're questioned in the morning and they're told very strictly, do not keep preaching about Jesus. And this becomes the first, but by no means the last time that opposition comes in the book of Acts to the message of Jesus. It gets worse. Again, a few chapters time, someone's going to die. But when Peter and John return. And this is where our reading picked up from the end of chapter 4. They reported all that had happened, and this prayer that we read is the result. See, verse 24, when they heard this, that is the assembly, the whole group of Christians, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So, let's have a look at this prayer that changed the world. Now, unlike the other prayers of the series, you know, we're talking about prayers in the Bible, praying with God, this is not a prayer, I hope you've noticed, this is not a prayer that you can just pray word for word, and it sort of makes sense in our context, is it? Like, you, you can't just pray exactly what they prayed. It's very specific to the circumstance and context. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to look closely at what they prayed here in point two, right? What they prayed before we think about, well, how we might apply the same kind of main ideas, the same dynamic and principles for our prayers of boldness. See what we're doing? All right, a little bit of interpreting. Now, it is a little bit more work, right, not being able to directly pray the words of this prayer, but it is worth it. I'll tell you why it's worth it. Because almost more than any other prayer in this series, the answer to the prayer for boldness will come even as you pray it. You got that? The answer to your prayer for boldness will come even as you pray it. Because you cannot pray the things that they pray, I mean, contextualizing to us, you cannot pray the things that we'll pray without already becoming bold as you pray. And it'll become obvious in a moment as we look at my next uh, sub-points, who, what, and how. So let's have a think about the who, the what, and the how. The first thing is who God is. Verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Okay, they begin by addressing God as Sovereign Lord. Now, this title there that they use is not a very common one, but it means absolute sovereign. In historical, in historical terms, um, it's talking about the kind of kingship that a dictator or an emperor exercised. So, uh, this is the what I say goes kind of kingship. There's no committee, there's no consultation, there's no parliament, there's no separation of powers. Absolute rule. That's the word used there. And so this is what they're saying God is. God is the sovereign, the one who is in absolute control. And 
And what has he done? He's made the world and everything in it. He's the creator of the skies above, the earth below, the depths of the sea. It's a nice poetic way, especially in Hebrew poetry, that basically when it talks about the extremes, it means everything in between. All right? So that's the kind of ruler that God is. And they addressed God in this way, not just because he is that, but because, remember, they've just come face to face with who? They've just come face to face with earthly rulers and earthly authorities. Earthly rulers who now you see are puny in power compared with the sovereign Lord that they're praying to. See, this is a declaration of faith right from the outset, isn't it? In the face of human rulers. In 2018, a pastor named Wang Yi, a house church leader in China, is arrested. Now, just this year, earlier this year, I looked it up. He was given, finally, after like, you know, almost, almost two years without um, a charge, he's finally given nine years' sentence in prison. His crime was he wasn't, didn't want the communist government to exert control over what he and his church believed in because they believed in the Bible. Now, he wrote a really long letter. It's been circulated on the internet. He might have read it, read it before, but he wrote it just before he was arrested. He knew it was coming. And he gave the reasons why he would continue to protest and resist government control, even if it meant imprisonment, even he was ready to die for it. And this is some of what he wrote. Let me read it out. He said, There is a higher authority than their authority. Jesus is Christ the Son of the living God. He died for sinners and rose for us. Yesterday, today, and forever. He is the master of my king and the whole world. I am his servant, and I am detained for this. I will gently resist all who resist God, and I will gladly disobey any law that does not obey God. I hope you see he's not just doing one of those, you know, the government tells us we must wear masks and socially distance, so I'm not doing that, okay? He's actually saying, I will gently resist laws which I know clearly are going to go against the law of my absolute sovereign God. Now, he is not the first, he is not the last of Christians who actually have done this all throughout history, peacefully, non-violent ways, protest and disobey earthly rulers and do so boldly. Because you cannot believe in a God who is the creator and absolute sovereign, can you? And not already be emboldened. Like if you believe these things about God, even in the face of the most powerful earthly authorities, you see them in a different light. And you are already emboldened, aren't you? Because of who you know God is. So that's the who. The next thing is the what. The prayer turns to what God has said. See that in verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now this next step is actually crucial to bold prayers. So we're going to talk a little bit more about it. Um, They did what we're actually doing, by the way. What are we doing? We're, we're taking Scripture and we're praying it back to God. That's what they're doing. They took their Scripture, right? The Old Testament, Psalm 2, a psalm about the Messiah, God's anointed and chosen king, and they're praying that back to God. Now, this psalm, Psalm 2, was written over a thousand years earlier, and it was about Jesus' great ancestor, the great King David. 
But the early Christians were able to see that this psalm wasn't just a song about David. It was a promise. It was a prophecy about David's descendant, David's greatest son, Jesus. And so they took that prophecy, and you see what they did? They took it and they applied it in their situation. So verse 27 says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand could happen. All right, what are they doing? They're taking their scripture, which is our scripture too, but for them it was the only scripture, the Old Testament, and they were applying it to their current situations. And that meant that they were not surprised. You see, they weren't surprised at all. Because they looked at Psalm 2, they saw their situation and said, ah, this has been prophesied. Both the plot against Jesus and now the plot against Jesus' people, it was all a part of God's plan. And so, you see, it was actually because they understood God's word as a word for all time, right? Because you understand God's word is not just back there, landlocked, time-locked. It's actually for all time. That's how this prayer came about. Now, I want you to also, again, notice that they didn't just quote God's word. They were actually able to use God's word. The quote itself is almost word for word from Psalm 2 with, you know, maybe one or two different differences, minor differences. But they didn't just quote it. They interpreted it. They applied it to their circumstance. Now, in Psalm 2, it's assumed that if you look back in Psalm 2, it's assumed that when it says the nations and the peoples, that it's talking about the same thing. So when it says that um, the kings of the... Uh, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? In Hebrew poetry or Hebrew parallelism, generally that means that nations and people are talking about the same thing. And it's assumed that the, the peoples also mean the nations. And the word for nations is also the word for Gentiles. All right? So you assume that it's talking about Nations, peoples, they're both talking about Gentiles. But you notice, though, when they actually came to their situation, they interpreted and applied it by seeing that the nations equals the Gentiles, but the peoples, they actually said, no, actually, that's the people of Israel, i.e. the Jews. You see what they did there? They saw that Psalm 2 actually predicted the very specific circumstances of what happened in Jerusalem only a couple of months ago with Jesus, that there was this wicked and twisted unifying of two warring groups of people, Gentiles and Jews, but in a twisted plot, decided to band together to crucify and destroy the Messiah. That was their way of interpreting Psalm 2 into their circumstance. You see what they did there? But also they were, did something else. They were also in, in this prayer, this follow-on prayer after they quote Psalm 2, they united two contrasting pictures of God's Messiah in the Old Testament, or God's promised king. So there was the Messiah, anointed one word. Okay, that's what Messiah means, anointed one. But then in verse 27, they also called Jesus, your holy servant. And so they were doing another part of applying God's word to their circumstance. You see, servant, that second title is a word used in the Old Testament, not from Psalms, but from Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is one of those passages. It's about the suffering servant, who wasn't a kingly figure. In fact, he would be despised and wounded and rejected and killed in weakness so that he could bear the sins of God's people in their place. Now, when I say that Jesus is the suffering servant and he's also the Messiah to us, it's like, duh, we all knew that. But you know, it was not obvious to them then. 
Right? And it, it, it wasn't obvious to the followers of Jesus while he was still on earth that the conquering and promised Messiah King would also be the suffering, dying, rejected servant of Isaiah. Like that was not an obvious thing. But you see what they did again, they were able to see God's word and then they were able to interpret it and apply it into their circumstances. And they brought together the picture of Jesus being Messiah and suffering servant. Now, I labor this point, because, and I'll come back to it in the next point, but it's really vital that we do this in our, in our praying for boldness. But for now, I hope how important it is to see that idea that when you speak and pray God's word back to him in prayer, that it in itself is such a tremendously powerful thing. In fact, it, it, out of this sermon series, I hope this is the thing you bring with you to your prayer life, that that growing in prayer, one of the best things you can do is to pray God's word back to him. You got that? To pray God's word, to remind God of his words. Now, by the way, this is not like the times when I remind my kids about what I've said. All right? Oh, sorry. Turn that around. When my kids have to remind me of what I've said. Right? You parents know this. Sometimes your kids will be like, but dad, you said this. Now, when they have to remind me of what I've said, it's because I've forgotten or I've chosen to have forgotten quite conveniently. Dad, you said I'd, you know, you'd buy me three bubble teas because I did well on my test. This is actually a thing in our household. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's right. I've just chosen to forget it. Yeah? It's not like that. God never forgets. So when we speak his words back to him, it's not because he's forgotten. It's actually for us an expression of our faith, isn't it? It's saying we believe in your word. And God loves it when we express faith like that. So that's why it's so important. So I, I wonder if you've been doing that. In this sermon series, as we've looked at confession, as we've looked at lament, as we've looked at last week praying for power, have you been using these prayers, these words to pray it back to God? Because it's tremendously powerful, isn't it? Okay, we've looked at the who, the what. Let's now have a look at the how. Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, they continue. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, once you understand the who and the what, hopefully you'll see the prayer, the how. Well, it just follows naturally. Right? This is why I say the, very, the answer to their prayer already came as they were praying it. Like you cannot believe and affirm and declare these things about who God is and what he's done and what he said without already becoming bold. And so they ask for two things you see then. Firstly, consider. Right, consider their threats. And then secondly, enable. Enable your servants to speak. They're the two main verbs. Consider and enable. The first, consider their threats, is actually, I hope you see, an act of surrender. You know, it's an act of surrender. Right? What these authorities are doing, the persecution that they're facing, the threats, the injustice, and it will get worse in Acts. They did not pray in response for vengeance. They did not curse. They did not get bitter. They did not take matters into their own hands. Even in their prayer, they're saying, we give it over to you. God, that's yours. You take care of that. You consider it. You look on it. That's what that prayer is, the prayer of surrender. The second thing they pray for is what they're now responsible for, right? God, you look after those things, but now you give us strength to do what we're responsible for doing. We need the courage to speak your word with great boldness. Yeah, you see that? God, you do your thing. 
give us courage to do our thing. Now, you might be thinking, oh, I think there's actually three requests, not two. I want to show you that verse 30 looks like it's a separate request, but it actually isn't. And um, it's where the ESV translation probably gets it more right. So the ESV translates in the, in the bold, in the yellow, while you stretch out your hands. Okay, I think the NIV has almost as a third thing, stretch out your hands to perform signs and wonders. Um, I, I think this is saying, again, very clear, this is part of the whole, right, this is your responsibility, God. You're responsible to keep doing your thing. Miracles, signs, wonders, while you help us keep doing our thing, preaching the word boldly. Just as a quick aside, when it comes to miracles and signs and wonders, I think this prayer actually strikes a really good balance that a lot of our churches lack today. Firstly, it does not deny that miracles and signs and wonders and the way that God can use them powerfully to affirm and attest to the message of Jesus, that's clearly the case. It doesn't deny they happen. And yet, though, it doesn't see miracles, signs, and wonders as something that's our responsibility either. That's really important. It doesn't say, this is our responsibility, so we're going to create it. We're going to build a school for it. We're going to build our church around it and make that the main game, miracles, signs, and wonders. You see, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in Acts doesn't happen anywhere in the New Testament. It strikes a balance between God's responsibility and ours while not denying miracles, signs, and wonders. All right, for another day, ask me about it later. But coming back to their prayer, what they prayed with the who, what, and how, you notice immediate effect, immediate answer. So you remember verse 31, after they prayed, like you want a prayer like this, right? You prayed and almost immediately you get a physical sign that's happening. Place where their meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke the word of God boldly. Bold, make us bold, God. Boom, out. And they were speaking the word of God boldly. Awesome, isn't it? Okay, let's bring it back home to us. Remember, this is not a prayer that you can pray word for word. So we need to understand this part of God's word and interpret it. We need to apply it to our own prayers. But that's exactly, by the way, did you notice? That's exactly what they did. In this prayer, they also took God's word, Psalm 2, and they interpreted it and applied it to their world, their situations, and then prayed in light of that. All right? They're doing what I'm going to ask us to do right now. And the result of it was a bold and powerful prayer. Now, we need to do that too. We need to do that too. Have you ever found yourself not knowing what to pray? Or your prayers are just really general prayers? Now, of course, God can and does answer those prayers because our hearts are much more important than exactly the words we say. But there's also something really powerful and enriching when our prayers come from a place of thoughtfulness and understanding. Because then you can pray even more specifically. And when you do so, it enlarges your heart, it increases the effectiveness of the prayer. And then when the prayers are answered, when you pray specifically and boldly, it's even more satisfying and awesome, isn't it? When you pray, not just general prayers and see them answered, when you pray specific prayers and see them answered. Now, if you want to do that, and I hope we'll all want to grow in prayer like that, if we want to do that, we have to have a better grasp of what I call both the Word and the world. You got that? You need to have both the Word and the world. You can't just understand parts of the Bible. You need to begin to understand the Bible as a whole. Right, grab hold of what the whole Bible says. And then you need to understand not just the Bible as an ancient text, 
but then how it speaks very directly into our world today. Let me, let me make it a little bit more um, hopefully understandable. In a sense, you need to be able to answer questions like, and these are not exhaustive questions, but you need to be able to look at God's Word and say, what does God's Word as a whole say about God's plan for the world? Now, can you do that? What is God's plan for the world? Because it's there. It's in the Bible. But then to be able to apply it to our world, would you be able to then answer the next question? What does God say about the events of 2020? Right? Bring God's Word into our world. Well, how about this one? What is God's plan for His people, the church? That's also in the Bible. You've got to see the whole picture of the Bible to be able to answer that. What is God's plan for the church? What, is, what does He want for us? What is our destiny? But then to be able to say, well, what about His plans or desires for His people in the midst of the kind of world we live in? What's His desire for us right now because of our secularization? Because of our loss of religious freedoms? Because of the scandals and sins in the church? because of the political division, because of climate change, because of depression and self-harm among youth rising, because of racial tensions, and the list goes on. Do you see what I mean? What does God's Word say about that? That's bringing Word and world together. And that'll be, enable you to pray like the early Christians prayed in Acts chapter 4. Um, that seems like a big deal. How do I get there? I'm not one of you Bible college techie guys, so what can I do? Well, let me give you some suggestions of just some applications. Um, Have you ever thought about studying the whole Bible and maybe beginning by just not reading bits and pieces, but reading whole books at a time, right? Read the whole Bible by beginning to read whole books of the Bible at a time. You'll notice that when we preach, our normal preaching program is that. We're trying to preach the whole books of the Bible because it's only as you grasp the whole Bible that you begin to do that. Um, How about learning some basic theology? You don't have to go to Bible college for that, although you can. There's a lot of online stuff, even free stuff. Uh, A suggested book, God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts, will help you put the whole Bible together. Not a thick book either, only like 200 pages. What about listening to some podcasts on the way to work, on the way to school, on the way to uni? Especially ones that are intersect the word and the world. A really nice, the good one that I listen to is Undeceptions by John Dixon. There's a whole lot of others. Ask me for recommendations. Be committed to the teaching of SWEC because we are on about this. Word and world. All right, be committed to it. Get involved in it. Learn as much as you can. Come to our seminars, workshops on Wednesday that are about womanhood, womanhood and manhood. They're going to try and apply word and world. Come along. And then fifthly, pray with others. And prayer is something that we can learn to do better, so learn from others as well. All right, so that's the first thing, word and world. What can you apply from that today? Because it'll help, us, help you in your prayers, especially for boldness. The second thing I want to say is, have a think about the whole who's responsible for what question. This is not working anymore. Can you advance slide for me? Um, We've got to understand God's responsibility versus ours. See, when you pray correctly, you hold the tension of both surrender and activism or activity, if you want an easier word, right? The tension between surrender and activity. Our responsibility, remember, is to speak clearly and boldly the good news of Jesus. Our responsibility is to respond to what we hear when we hear it. That includes hearing the sermon today. And so we pray for boldness, we pray for courage. We pray that we might respond as we should and speak as we should. That's our responsibility. And by the way, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, your big responsibility today is just to respond to the fact that Jesus wants you 
to put your trust in Him. He offers you, through His death and resurrection, new life. That's what you're responsible for, and you can respond today. All right, so that's our responsibility. But what other people do with God's Word is His responsibility. Right, so when you preach the world to others, it's God's work to soften their hearts and bring them to conversion. It's God's responsibility when people will reject your message, even become hostile to it, even persecute. It's His responsibility if and when the whole society might turn against our message and we might find that we are a persecuted church like we were in the first century, which is actually possibly going to happen in the next few decades. That's His responsibility though. Right? So those things, our job is to surrender them to God but we keep praying and acting in terms of what we're responsible for. So that's a really important point of application. And last point, if you can forward this slide for me. They started this prayer together and in unity. Remember verse 24, what a powerful description. After hearing about Peter and John's stint in jail, commanded not to preach, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They ended, right, they started with corporate prayer they ended with corporate empowerment. Last verse, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word boldly. See, God loves it when you pray for boldness, but He loves it even more when you pray for boldness together. When we as His people together seek God, He especially answers those prayers in big ways because reaching the world is not a solo effort, is it? It's a church effort. I sincerely believe that SWEC, our church, won't begin to see the impact that we plan and long for until that weekly prayer meeting grows. Now, this is not to guilt those of you who don't go to weekly prayer meeting Thursday nights on Zoom, 9.30, just for half an hour. But I want to challenge you, especially if you're in leadership, and you make plans, and you maybe pray on your own, but you do it without regularly gathering God's people to pray with you or being part of that corporate prayer for those plans. Have you thought about that? That maybe God will not answer the prayers that you pray individually until you are committed to pray it corporately. I sincerely believe that for our church. Until we are sincerely committed to pray and to beg and to intercede and we do it regularly like that widow knocking on the door until God answers, God reach our world, God bless our community, God make us bold, God send us out, God convert our neighbors. Until we're doing that together and we're doing that weekly and we're doing that regularly, I sincerely believe God will not do big things. So while this is not a guilt you into coming, because you know what, guilt won't drive you for very long. Guilt will make you come for one, two weeks, three weeks. But I wonder if today there will be enough of you who will be like, no, I will commit to that because I believe in prayer and I believe that when God's people band together and pray together, something powerful is going to happen. Revival will not come until we band together and pray together regularly, desperately, in unity. So what are you waiting for? 9.30, Thursday nights on Zoom. It's easier than ever. You don't have to leave your lounge rooms, your bedrooms. Just join us. Some people just join. They can't pray out loud because they're in their car, but they'll join and they'll just listen. It doesn't matter how you join. We're there every single week. I'm there in holidays. 
I'm there on my staff retreats because I don't want to miss it. Because this prayer meeting is the engine room for anything our church wants to do in the future. So, how many of you are willing to give up half an hour on Thursday nights to be part of that? John Piper says this, Prayer is not a hotel phone to call for room service. How many of you think of prayer as a darling to God? God, I need this. God, I need that. God, I need this for room service. No, prayer is not a hotel phone for room service. It is a wartime walkie-talkie to radio for air support because you're in the trenches and the enemy is coming and you need that fighter jet to come and bomb the hell out of the enemy. That's what prayer is. See, if our eyes and our concerns are so small that we only ever care about and therefore pray for the things that matter to us, then we will see very little fruit in our prayers and we will never, if rarely, pray for boldness or power, last week's prayer for that matter. But if we see that we're soldiers fighting in a war in the name of Jesus and that what's at stake are the souls of billions headed to hell, then our prayers will be urgent and specific and bold and united and regular. Let's get ready to sing. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would stir in us above all today a desire to pray, a boldness to claim and pray the very things that you want to do in this world, but that you will not do until we come together and we seek and we intercede for our world, and we stand in the gap between our world headed to hell and you. So stir in this very congregation today a people who are committed to pray, and pray boldly, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.